Hi, and welcome back to another episode of the DD Geopolitics Podcast. I'm Sarah, joined by GM, JM. <laughs> and our special guest today is Shabira Rizvi. He's a political analyst specializing in U.S. and foreign and domestic policy, geopolitics, and military science. He writes for Press TV and Al Mayadeen. He is a whole milk enthusiast and world's best kitten father. JM, you have competitions. Shabir, welcome to the show. How are you? Assalamu alaikum. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm doing well. Uh, whole milk and uh, bang energy, if I could give a quick shout out. <laughs> Do not mix the two, please. Do not mix the two. No, 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 no. JM, how are you? It's been a while. Good morning, since that's now my name, GM. GM, the top GM. Top GM. Anyway, so we're going to talk about Iran today. Um Iran's uh, revolutionary march to the global stage, like Iran taking on a leadership position, totally emerging out from uh, isolation and maybe even being an inspiration for other isolated states such as North Korea. So what did you think of Ibrahim Raisi's speech at the UN? Because I know that most of my Muslim friends were like, yes, but I really wanted to get you because I know you like to analyze stuff like that. So how how did it feel? What did you think? Yeah, short answer. Uh, fantastic speech. I would argue it's the best one. But I think we have to really take into a lot of variables here around the speech, right? Um, let's actually start off with my favorite one is that the, the Zionist uh, envoy <laughs> got booted out like immediately. Like, you know, actually, the best part about that was, you know, out of, for the uninitiated, like this Israeli envoy held up like this woman life freedom uh, sign while President Raisi was speaking. And like, no one cared. Like, no one cared at all. This guy was holding up this sign, which I think is hypocritical, hypocritical of itself, because as we're as he's holding up this sign that says like, you know, I don't even know what it said. It just had something to do with that women, women life, whatever movement. Right. Um, I'm not even going to give it, you know, the respect and that name that it deserves. Like Israel, this just this month was like strip searching people. Right. Uh, it's, it's shot journalists. It's, it's killed like, you know, women journalists. Uh, it's killed like women nurses that are on the battlefield, like, you know, escorting civilians out of like a, like a war zone. And so just like the hypocrisy of that, uh, is really interesting to me. And at the same time, like nobody cared, right? You would think that, you know, <laughs> in a country that was previously, I will say previously, as isolated as Iran was that, you know, the Zionists would at least, you know, reach out to their neighbors or like, you know, their allies or associates and be like, hey, we're going to pull this really cringe stunt. <laughs> you want to join us. And you know what? No one did. Even if they asked, it seems that no one did. If you look very closely at that video, maybe like two people turn around and they immediately just turned right back to President Raisi. And then just to get into the content of the speech, right? Uh, I think first and foremost, what I think billions of people, billions, I will say, across the world can agree upon is, uh, you know, the defense of the Quran itself. He held up the Holy Quran. He read a poem about it uh, in recent months for the people that haven't been, you know, uh, keeping up, you know, there's been Quran desecrations across uh, Western Europe. You'd think they would worry about energy prices or things like that because, you know, essentially Europe is sanctioning itself to death on behalf of the United States. But no, it seems like they want to burn the Quran. Um, I mean, it, the Quran gives me a sense of warmth in my heart. If they're trying to burn it to keep themselves, you know, you know, actually physically warm, um, I would say stop sanctioning Russia, but that's a whole beast of its own. And then finally, if you can just let me go on for just a minute longer. I think yesterday uh, really encapsulates the last year 
because just a year ago, right? Um, Western media, all cameras on Iran, the woman life freedom or whatever movement, um, you know, started off, uh, you know, through foreign plots, there were riots on the streets, things like that. And so everybody was saying, at least like the, this Twitter army, right? Was essentially saying that this is the end of the Islamic Republic of Iran. Um, this was quite a year, 365 days ahead. There was a lot that we're going to get into, I'm sure. But all this to say, um, whoever was plotting against this Iran yesterday marks their loss. They lost. Um, you know, there was warm greetings for President Raisi. He came out victorious. Um, everybody that had worked to overthrow, you know, the Islamic Republic of Iran got slapped across the face with all five fingers. He addressed so many issues in yesterday's speech. He addressed the burning of the Quran, which was amazing because, and, and you know, a lot of people say, oh, well, it does burn. But I, I think that's the best thing about it is that um, Islam tells you to memorize the Quran. So, you know, the saying is you could destroy all the Qurans in the world and a couple hours later there would be a new one. So um, the, there's no getting rid of the Quran. He addressed women's um, <clears throat> incarceration in the, sorry, my dog is, is having a blast. He, he addressed women's incarceration in the United States. He addressed nuclear power. He addressed um, quite a few things. And watching the Israel Israeli ambassador being escorted out was just like, wow, maybe maybe it is a new world. Maybe it is different, you know, because everybody said when when the BRICS summit happened that, you know, everybody makes fun of BRICS. BRICS is a joke. And then you see things like this and you're like, maybe the world is changing a little bit because Israel is a very prominent player at the UN and usually they could get away with this crap. So I'm pretty, pretty impressed with how yesterday, yesterday went. And, and while, since we're on the topic, how do you feel about Iran joining BRICS and immediately becoming a key player through uh, oil, basically oil bartering? Yeah, 100%. I mean, I'm enthusiastic about it. Uh, I think I was listening to this very podcast where I think Iran was your top choice. I think someone else said Syria. I was actually banking on either one of those two. I think Syria is down the line, but all this to say about Iran, I thought it was a natural choice um, for many reasons. So one, you know, there's the north, there's the north-south corridor that facilitates billions to you know potentially trillions worth of you know resources and revenue for the region. Right. So it's already Iran's already a key player in that. You can't not go through Iran there. Um, two, earlier this year, they joined the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which, you know, already has, you know, Russia and China as key players in there. And so with that being said, I thought when that moment happened, then it's going to be extremely obvious that they're going to join BRICS. And then the final nail in the head, I think, was when India, right? India really doesn't really need to say anything about Iran. There's really no choice, right? But I mean, there's really like, no reason for India to really speak on Iran, but India really went out of its way to say, we think Iran should be part of BRICS. We're gonna do everything that we can to make sure that they join uh, BRICS. And I think all this to say, like Iran has really proved itself to be a key player, because if you take a look at you know the last 20 years, the so-called, during the so-called war on terror, because I think that's like the backdrop of you know what's happening in the region, you know, Iran survived a lot. Um, it survived crippling sanctions for like decades on end, but then also survived terror plots. It survived like, you know, Mossad assassinations. There was the falling out of the JCPOA. There was a high pressure sanctions, a maximum pressure sanctions rather under the Trump administration. There was the assassination of General Soleimani where 
you know, the United States was basically saying, we're not going to, you know, let your influence, uh, you know, bleed out into the region. But despite all of that, Iran played its cards right, uh, despite having all these, you know, odds stacked against it. And I think, you know, key players like, you know, China, India, uh, Brazil, Russia really saw that despite all of this that's happening, Iran is dodging all these sanctions. It's, you know, charging right ahead. It's facilitating not only, you know, the trade of oil, but other, you know, key exports. And all the while, it's surviving all these, you know, assassination attempts, all these overthrows, all this like regime change stuff. And all the while, even on top of that, it's assisting what we call, you know, the axis of resistance, right? It's, it's helping uh, the, the Syrian Arab army fight, you know, not only ISIS, but also American influence in the region. It's, it's helping out Hezbollah in Lebanon. It's helping out the Palestinian resistance. It's even happy, helping out Ansarullah in, in Yemen. It's, it's helped uh, create the popular mobilization forces in Iraq. So, you know, it's dodging sanctions. It's trudging on ahead economically. It's, it's a military powerhouse on record. You know, the, the Iranian defense ministers can say, oh, well, we never, you know, gave the Shahed drones to Russia. We're not supplying them, but you know, hint, hint, wink, wink, right? Well, yeah, and and I mean, it was Syria. I was the one who said Syria. That was my dream entry into BRICS. But I need we need Iran in order to get to the Levant, um, and I think that that's why uh, the in- entry of Iran was so strategic and for fear of of maybe going out on a limb. It kind of balances out the entrance entry of Saudi and the entry of UAE. So um, to me, and I might be speaking out of turn, Saudi and the Gulf States don't function the same way as the Levant and Iran. Um, I feel like Iran has a stronger connection to the Levant and Yemen. And I think that this was a good counterbalance to that. And it starts to bring Saudi Arabia out of the Western sphere of influence and into the Arab League as, as another key player. So now we see Iran emerging as and Saudi Arabia both emerging as the two key players in the Arab League, but they're kind of opposite poles without being in, in active conflict. So I think it was a decent, a decent counterbalance. And and I really I am daring to say maybe JM, you agree, but I think that the Iran coming out of isolation and joining BRICS has sent a signal to other countries such as DPRK, Cuba, maybe some of the globe, more of the global South and even some of Africa to start saying, hey, we might be sanctioned to death, but it doesn't have to be this way. Or even rather that it doesn't matter because there is this whole idea that I think the West still has, which is uh, very strange to have i think in this era which is that we're in any sense the world it's not 1900 anymore where one third of the population of this planet earth lives in north america and in europe that just isn't how the world works anymore and it's especially not the world of 1900 where almost all of the economic activity industrial production financial services that you could find on this planet Earth and being able to do that was concentrated in that uh, golden sector of the North Atlantic stretching approximately, you know, from, shall we say, Chicago to St. Petersburg. It's not that world anymore. It's a, in that, in that sense, that the West is just um, a very, very important part, but nonetheless just a part of this broader world. It cannot claim to 
be, you know, the world. So when it says Russia is isolated from the rest of the world, I think you need to first ask India and China about that, not just because of how many people there are there, but also because of now the economic importance and sophistication of those countries. I mean, after all, India just landed on the moon. Um, so, the, and both Russia and the United States find it difficult, and China itself finds that difficult, but India managed it. And as we've seen over the past eight years, yes, Iran is both determined, but also very sophisticated, and also I think something of a subtle actor. Let me put it this way, despite um, <clears throat> some rather uh, unfortunate mishaps with what Quds Force did with anti-air missiles to an airliner, Nonetheless, the Iranians showed incredible restraint given that they had just suffered an act of war by the killing of a major general. Um, I think that was both his rank and the fact that he was a very important general, because the equivalent would have been if um, someone had assassinated the U.S. commander of Special Operations Command. Can you imagine what the United States would do if suddenly the a state actor openly boasted about murdering the head of Special Operations Command, um, the United States would have said, very well then, uh, I declare war. Iran, however, showed incredible restraint in what must have been incredibly hard, not just within the circles of power, but in broader society to show such restraint. So it was a great maturity and a great sense of state. Not only that, but their advancements in so many sectors have has been incredible but we have to focus on women's rights and uh clothing in the west iran has one of the best uh plastic surgery and surgery uh programs in the world they have the best drone program in the world they can't even keep up with orders anymore they just built a drone carrier like and but we have to we have to shun them because um human rights i don't i don't i'm not that's what we're focused on so <laughs> it's just kind of like uh, anything that we can do to um, bastardize or uh, demonize the Islamic Republic is is, is what's going to happen in the West. Let me just say really quickly, um, you know, I think you made a great point there, um, JM or GM, um, whichever you prefer. I'll, I'll, I'll respect both. Um, <laughs> when it comes to, I think you made a great point there about the, the, the Quds Force. Um, and I think that's just actually a testament to, uh, you know, Iran's security in general, because one thing Iran Iran can like do that I think no other nation can really keep up with, outside of maybe, I guess, China, right, um, is that they can play their cards right and they'll play them patiently um, because time and time we see, again, like these nations like, you know, you know, the United States, for example, or its allies like, you know, Azerbaijan or even um, in that context anyway. Uh, and Israel constantly trying to pester Iran and trying to get them into this, you know, this conventional warfare scenario that's going to be dragged out. It's going to be used against Iran. And then in the meantime, they're really banking on something internal happening in Iran, kind of like the riots last year, to really finish off uh, Iran's government. And I think Iran has always played its cards very carefully, especially with exactly what you said, the assassination of General Soleimani, where they had very targeted strikes, right? Um, but that is to say, they still are saying that they're not through with their revenge. And I think that's way more important uh, to play the long-term game and keep bringing it up until they declare real justice has been achieved. Because if they do go into a full flat-out war scenario, right, and they don't have their cards right, and they're not prepared, right, that could result in the entire collapse of the region, 
That's exactly what the United States wants. It wants Iran to play into the scenario where they can then use whatever they want to to declare you know, a conventional war scenario. And then that spells out the axis of a resistance, right? Um, the whole thing falls apart. You know, a large swath of, of the resistance factions do rely on, you know, Iranian weapons. They rely on Iranian intelligence and logistics. And so Iran has to really play at cards right because, you know, Iran's ideology very much motivates the resistance in and within that region. But also just to go back to playing its cards right, um, I think the great example of that, how it plays that out, you know, domestically are these riots, right? Because if you recall the riots last year, they went on for quite some time, didn't they? I think they pretty much culminated at the end of, you know, that horrific mosque shooting uh, at the shrine. I can't recall the, the name of the shrine right now, um, but, you know, essentially ISIS entered and they shot up a bunch of people and it was horrific. But then those riots culminated, right? It was done. Um, there were very few, you know, people actually partaking in them. And I think it's actually pretty smart, right? Because Iran saw this 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 event occurring. It saw mostly swaths of people on the streets, not quite, you know, millions, but definitely like, you know, a few thousand in total, right? And what did it do? Just kind of let it play out, right? Of course, the security forces were deployed. Of course, they were they were quelled. Um, they were using paintball guns, which I think is a huge testament to how Iran treats its own citizens in respect to the United States, where, you know, I was very much part of the George Floyd uprising. We had, you know, cops with live ammunition there ready to, you know, open fire at any time. I remember that very specifically. Um, and so, you know, all this to say, in the meantime, while these riots are happening, right, these people are clearly being funded from by someone, right? The tactics that they're using are the same kind of tactics that we saw with, like, you know, the Hong Kong rioters, right? And we all know the CIA's hands were all over that. So what did the intelligence secure, the, the intelligence services do? They just waited and they tried to find the exact source of this, right? Because this is a good opportunity for whoever is a bad character in Iran to really reveal themselves, right? And they took this opportunity, they found the source and, you know, they arrested a bunch of people. No one's denying that, you know, thousands of people were arrested. But if you actually look at what happened later down the line, which is what, you know, Western media does not like to admit, you know, I, I believe it was at the start of this year. I, I believe the occasion was Eid, actually, where Ayatollah Khomeini um, pardoned thousands yep. of people at the same time. He pardoned thousands of them. Can you imagine that happening in the United States where thousands of people no. are just like, hey, you know, you can leave. You know, it's only been a few months. Sorry about that. You know, you're gone. Just don't do that again. Right. And they can do that with exact certainty. They can let people leave with exact certainty because the source has been taken care of. If they were economically motivated, Great. Now you're not going to get paid. Go back and get a real job, loser. Right. Um, <laughs> if they were ideologically motivated, they probably are still in prison. Right. Or maybe they're, you know, they're, they're let back into society, into a society that now understands that this person is a bad actor. Let's keep an eye on them. But, you know, you don't really see these riots, you know, a year later. Right. Uh, on the anniversary, a lot of people were probably expecting, you know, something to break out. There are maybe like 12 bourgeois kids in some street corner and dead on. <laughs> That, that are screen and they're probably like the sons and daughters of like foreign ambassadors that are doing this anyway. So it, who cares, right? But I think you know Iran can act in full confidence right now because whatever was there, whatever you know foreign assets were there have been taken care of. They're in jail or somewhere worse. I hope personally. Uh, and then you also see kind of like you know where they were receiving arms shipments, right? So I think there's two key areas where you know there was you know the protesters or rioters rather were able to find weapons, right? And start shooting at security forces were two main areas. So 
One would be Balochistan, just near the Pakistan border, and one would be Kurdistan, which is near you know the Iraq border. As we speak right now, are you taking the words out of my mouth? I was just about to say, let's yeah. get spicy. Let's talk about the Kurds. But yeah, yeah exactly. As we speak right now, as we speak right now, actually, Iran's not even doing this. They told Iraq, hey, you have a Kurd problem at your border. If you don't take care of it right now, we're going to take care of it for you. Right. And, you know, I'm obviously not grouping all Kurds into one thing because that's horrifically terrible and racist. All I'm saying is that there's a lot of Kurdish separatists that actually had a hand in these internal riots that were happening. They were actively arming them. And so Iran is actually flexing, I think it's uh, geopolitical muscles right now by saying, take care of this Iraq. We know that you have some influence within your parliament that's US installed influence. Uh, we're gonna let you take care of it. Otherwise we're gonna take care of it for you, right? Uh, and then the same thing kind of in Balochistan where it's, you know, it's pressuring the Pakistani government like, hey, you have a serious terrorist problem on this border. It's actually not even impacting us. It's impacting you because these are the same terrorists that are responsible for, you know, actually blowing up some of the some of the projects that China had with Pakistan that were set to bring in, uh, you know, thousands, sorry, millions of dollars worth of revenue. So there's actually a mix of like standard Al Qaeda people combined with the East uh, Turkmenistan or sorry, the East Turkestan movement, which is, you know, the, the Uyghur separatists that are in that are in the Xinjiang region. So there's a whole slew of bad actors completely surrounding Iran. And so Iran has to, again, play its cards right, and it's played them patiently, and it's played them correctly. And as we saw yesterday, it has paid off. Is this current situation improving the relations between Iraq and Iran? Because obviously we know that they've not always been the best, but are they improving now? That Because I know Iraq um, works pretty closely with Syria, and I always look at Iran as like kind of like the guardian of Syria in a way. Um, but does this, are the ties between, also Pakistan has always had a terrorist problem, but <laughs> is this strengthening the relationship between Iran and Iraq, or is this more cause for uh, strife? I think within most swaths of Iraqi people, I think it's strengthening the relations. I think a good, you know, event to point to was two weeks ago, which is the event of Arbain, which is where, you know, millions of pilgrims go into Karbala, which is this holy city in Iraq. Um, and you can see the kind of like, you know, the border movements between Iran and Iraq, which are, you know, guarded by both Iraqi and Iranian security forces. Um, and it went off pretty much without an incident. The one thing that did happen, though, that I do want to comment on is a Kurdish leader. I forgot his name. Actually, his supporters started to kind of riot in, in the Kurdish regions. And Iraqi special operations forces actually had to be deployed there to quell that. Um, I think that just goes to show where Iraqi people kind of stand when it comes to who would they rather prefer as their ally? Would it be, you know, the, the Kurdish region that's always kind of, you know, starting riots or like, you know, these uprisings at very unwelcome times? Or is it going to be the Iranians who they actually, you know, a lot of Iraqis are, are Shia Muslim, as you know, and, and, you know, Iran is, you know, Shia Muslim. I think they would rather, you know, have a Shia Muslim on their side than someone that, you know, in in Syria, for example, is very much openly siding with the United States. And we all know the horrific things that the United States did in Iraq. Oh, yes. I just wanted to say, by the way, that in terms of um, the Kurds themselves, I think if you don't mind, I'm going to quote from one of the books by former Russian Prime Minister Yevgeny Primakov about the uh, development of the relationship with the Kurds and how um, Barsani, back in the early 70s, phrased it. When Primakov was complaining to him that uh, he was develop 
while also seeking money from the Soviet Union, was developing ties with the United States and was also reaching out to Israel and also trying to deal with the Iranian government against Saddam and also trying to deal with Saddam. And this was his response. I knocked on one door asking for bread and was turned away I, from Saddam. What am I supposed to do? Starve to death? So I knocked on another door. Who's to blame? Me or the one that turned me away? So it just kind of shows um, there that I think what seems to be happening in um, up there is that some of this sort of dealing is uh, this juggling act is starting to fail. This very dangerous juggling act because they tend to play with high explosives. Yeah, and then it's ultimately going to lead you to be surrounded by enemies, right? That you, you, it's actually you at fault here. Let's talk about the recent release of the funds to Iran. Most of the Iranians that I know are talk are celebrating it as a victory. I look at it as a victory, but why don't you, for our listeners, kind of explain the exchange and and the dynamics of it? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, it's business as usual, freezing Iran's assets for the United States. Um, it's very hard to get this sort of stuff back. Usually there's some sort of major concession from Iran's side. Usually it has to do with uh, nuclear. Um, this time, not not very, like pretty much very different, right? Because, you know, there's a lot that one can say was exchanged um, in terms of like, you know, American prisoners that were like, you know, uh, it, it was said that they were spies. Uh, I don't really know too much if they were spies or not. Um, and one can go back and forth about that for both, you know, sets of prisoners, right? Because, I mean, there's a lot to say there. But I think it's a huge political victory that right now, right? Like right now, as we speak, that $6 billion was unfrozen, right? Because as America is trying to like sanction Iran, uh, they're giving them $6 billion, right? So they America is clearly admitting that, you know, there's there's a concession here. They're trying to like kind of create the smoke screen here, like, oh, we're sanctioning Iran. Uh, look at the sanctions. Don't look at the fact that we unfroze six billion dollars on actually 9/11. Uh, a lot of racist Americans want to equate Iran with you know 9/11 because it goes to the war on terror. I'm like, no, actually, Osama bin Laden was your guy. Um, but all this saying, uh, don't give us. He was the yeah. Saudis guy. He was the Saudis. He was ours yeah. and the Saudis. Okay, okay. Yeah, we'll, we'll give him that. He was a Saudis guy, but you know, you know, the Soviet war in Afghanistan, all that stuff. We can we can go back and forth about that. But I think right now it's happening is really funny because you know Iran's on its way to the UN as the as it's being unfrozen. It's also on the exact anniversary of of the Women Life Freedom riots, and so you had this major lobbying. And all this political like raw rawing in Washington a year ago that's saying, hey, you know, do something about Iran, you know, act on Iran, you know, sanction them, starve them, do whatever. A year later, how about um, we just release six billion of their dollars? I think it's also worth paying attention to uh, some of the political framing about it at home, because a lot of politicians are taking the Twitter or taking to their statements and saying, we gave Iran six billion dollars. Mm. You didn't give you didn't no. give Iran anything. You unfroze their money. Americans are like pissed that like um, they think that like taxpayer dollars are, are going to Ayatollah Khomeini's pocket. We which, actually like, we earned money. We took we kept the interest. So yeah, exactly. 
Exactly, exactly. I think that's a very key point about that because, you know, as, as you withhold that money, that money has to go somewhere. But besides that point as well, like if Americans want to be pissed about, you know, their money being used for something stupid, I mean, I don't know. Look at Zelensky. <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> we can't. Uh, a hundred billion dollars plus in U.S. taxpayer money. And I don't know if you saw the ticker, but they just gave another three hundred twenty-five million just about ten minutes ago. It's ridiculous. Like, no, no money is enough for that guy's nostrils. Like, it's ridiculous. I do have to ask uh, two questions. So uh, the first is, why do you think that the United States kept freezing the money at, even after these assets, even after sanctions were over, um, even after they twisted uh, Iran's arm quite successfully into signing the JCPOA, but then they then just flipped over the table and the more minor question, how did you feel about the fact that all of a sudden at a lot of these protests, imperial flags started appearing everywhere? Let me start off with the latter one first, because <laughs> I, I, I'm going to swear here, but I fucking hate the Shah. Uh, let me actually just give you a bit of history and, and how, how these like imperial, like these monarchists like fly this flag, right? Because they like to... They like to frame Iran as like this progressive society before before 1979, and the only pictures they have of it are 1970s and 1960s Tehran, and they have all these actresses there. Okay, let's look at any other city besides Tehran, right? Tehran is a bourgeois capital of imperial Iran, where all these like Hollywood celebrities are flying in. Uh, they have like you know the bankers there. They have the oil executives there. They have the entire royal family there. Okay, let's look at Bandar Abbas. Let's look at home. Let's let's look at Shiraz. Let's look at literally any other city. And what you have is the Shah's secret police, you know, breaking up majlis, which are basically religious gatherings, right? They're breaking up Friday prayer. They're torturing people to death. Um, there's poverty, rampant poverty everywhere. And either these people are completely ignorant or oblivious, or they are the most racist, maniacal, evil pieces of shit in the world. They're, take your pick, right? So I personally, I see the I see the monarch his flag, and I either think okay this is just an historical relic in, in in like you know one context, or if it's in a context where it's being thrown in my face, like I, what the hell is wrong with you, right? These are like completely like, uh, like essentially just British assets at that moment in time, right? So I don't like that at all. Um, Can I ask I, a question about the monarchists? Because I was holding a space with a couple of Iranians. They were IRGC or they support theater on the state. And then of course we had gotten some, some infiltrators, which I love a good infiltrator, but they got to like teach me something. So these people were, I, I don't even believe that they were Iranian, but I think they were, but they came in and they were like, like we want the Shah back and Iran can help Israel. And if Israel and Iran can make peace, then like that's like the ultimate goal here. And they all lived in the West. They were in, either in Australia or the United States. As I was calling them the Shahs of Sunset because they all live in like California or on the Gold Coast of Australia. And it was just the strangest thing that they were like, we are Iranian Zionists. And I was like, that doesn't even like compute in my brain. So I, I was like, are these just like agent provocateurs that are actually just Zionists and are pretending to be Iranian. And I, and if so, they're not very good at, at their job. So I've never understood that kind of like, we can, uh, they, uh, that 
we can just oppose Iran and the Israeli state. It just doesn't, it doesn't like make sense to me. So I was like, why is this even like a thing? My maybe controversial answer is going to be (laughs) in every revolution, some people are rightfully kicked out. Um, And those people and their, whatever lineage they came from were probably rightfully kicked out because they were maybe collaborators. uh, Maybe they were traitors. But as it turns out, most importantly, they support an apartheid occupation regime. Is there a um, word for gusano in Farsi? Monothathine, <laughs> uh, which basically means hypocrites. Okay. Um, it's, a, it's actually a surah in the Quran. Um, but all this to say, um, I mean, even like, you know, the Cubans kicked out, you know, what we call gusanos. Uh, even the Soviets kicked out Trotsky. Um, every revolution has its traitors. Um, and I think what you can encounter for authentic Iranians, but uh, authentic in the sense that they were you know, loyal to the Shah, they were loyal to the Western project, they were loyal to colonialism. They were okay with their country being um, essentially a puppet state for, for the West, uh, which includes, you know, at that time, primarily England, but it would eventually, of course, be you know, the United States. Um, and so those people were completely content. They uh, are probably the most proponent supporters of the women, life, freedom, rights Because they believe in uh, Western liberalization of the entire land, right? Uh, to them, you know, the Iranian woman is oppressed because they can't view her. They can't subject her to, you know, their, you know, probably hypersexualized thoughts. Um, these are people that believe that if you cannot be an object to them, then they'll get mad about it and they'll kick and scream about it. So their entire uh, framing of things is from an angle that, you know, says that Western liberalism is correct. The rest of the world needs to get in line and quote unquote advance. And most Iranians don't agree with that. Exactly. It's just more woke imperialism. And we're going to get into um, what I really have questions about. I think JM will too. Armenia and Azerbaijan. Iran has now taken on a negotiator role where Russia didn't. That's kind of neat. I kind of thought maybe JM, you might agree where you can at least elaborate. I kind of thought Russia allowed that to happen. Not that they're allowing, not that Iran has to ask permission, but the fact that Iran did take on a little bit of a mediator role and Russia kind of said, okay, let's let Iran handle it. You know, we have Azerbaijan, who is a majority, they're secular as a state, but it's a majority Muslim country. And then you have an Orthodox Orthodox Armenian country and Iran backs Armenia, but utilizing its common ground of Islam to also negotiate with Azerbaijan. Is that, and what's the relationship there between Iran and Armenia? I know that we, for our listeners, um, Azerbaijan is mostly backed by Turkey and Israel, so it would make it a natural proxy enemy to Iran. But just surprising to see Iran um, has backed Armenia and is now kind of like, okay, the government in Armenia doesn't really make a lot of sense, so we can like maybe negotiate with both sides. So how do you see this kind of going for Iran? Yeah, no, great question. I think first and foremost, we need to address the Iran's red lines. And Iran's red line here is that Iran will not accept any change within its within the regional borders, especially for borders that you know touch Iran, right? Because that's bad for business. Iran has worked tremendously to establish the various economic corridors, you know, around the region. And any type of war is going to disrupt that, right? It's going to disrupt the cash flow, and also it's just going to disrupt um, 
it's just going to disrupt civil society because you know Iran's already subjected, like you know, taking care of like millions and millions and millions of Afghan refugees, right? It's also taken in you know loads of Iraqi refugees. It's taken in refugees from everywhere. And the last thing it needs is another border crisis, which is going to lead to millions of more people coming into Iran and then you know being a drain on its you know political system, on its resources. To which you know Iran Iranians are some of the most hospitable people you will meet, right? But um, the one thing you need to understand is that resources are finite, right? Especially when you're one of the most tremendously sanctioned countries in the world, if not like the most sanctioned country. And so first and foremost, I think Iran will not accept any type of border war uh, on its territory. Second, um, you know, Azerbaijan, this is my personal, very personal political opinion, uh, maybe even religious opinion, but, you know, Azerbaijan can have like, you know, the moon and the crescent on its flag. It can claim to be Muslim, but at the end of the day, they're, they're serving Western imperialism. Um, they're very close to the Zionist state. Uh, in fact, you know, I don't know if you, I think you posted this actually, but they were, they were celebrating with the Azerbaijani flag next to the next to the Israeli flag. And so I think that just basically shows you um, kind of the Azerbaijan's orientation uh, and their role in, in, in the current state of affairs. So I think it's important. Uh, I mean, Armenia is like primarily Christian, right? Orthodox Christian. And so I think it, I I think it's perfectly reasonable to for Iran to take its specific actions right now. Um, I think it really just comes. I don't think it really comes down to um, religious preference. I think it comes down to stability. Yes, I, I think um, stability is definitely very important. When uh, just before we went on, we had the news coming out that effectively um, Nagorno-Karabakh, Artsakh has completely capitulated. So uh, the Az Az Azerbaijanis uh, have won the war. It's been going on some, on and off since uh, 1988. Been a long time, but, they, but they've won. But I would have to, to ask, um, what do you... To, what do you think here um, the goal of the United States is? Because on the one hand, they pretend to be uh, Armenia's best friend, you know, talking and sponsoring uh, movies where Oscar Isaac plays a journalist uh, uncovering the crime, and Christian Bale's also in it, I think, uncovering the crimes of the Armenian genocide. And then on the other hand, is cheering through articles in the Atlantic Council about Armenians getting slaughtered in the 2020 war. What, what's the game here? Yeah, I think that could easily be answered by soft power influence. If you convince a bunch of, you know, Armenians that America has your back, America helped save you out of this very tumultuous situation with you know, something that was bound to happen, but with at least the less amount of bloodshed as possible. But also, you know, Armenians are cool with Russia. They're cool with Iran. If America is able to kind of change uh, Armenia's orientation towards both of those countries, two extremely hostile countries to the United States, then at the end of the day, you know, America doesn't have to fire a single bullet. It's, it's captured the hearts and minds of a bunch of people. And actually it doesn't even really necessarily need to capture the minds of the majority of people. It just needs to capture the minds and convince the people, you know, in, in the ruling class of Armenia and the political class of Armenia that it has its back and, you know, you'll get all these security guarantees and, you know, we'll even write you a check if you do as we say. Yeah. But then one also has to think about that element of soft power. Um, what 
what do you think would motivate people to ascribe to this? Because effectively, especially as events have unfolded the way they have, it is um, please offer up a blood sacrifice so that we can let you into our inner social group and so it'll be as socially acceptable for us to socialize with you on an elite level. Maybe I'm reading too much into that, but well, what could induce somebody to do that? I think it's less about what the U.S. has to offer and more about demonization of other countries that are, could potentially be friendly to Armenia, particularly, again, Iran and Russia. I think, um, you know, I think there's some bad players also on, on the ground itself that are kind of blaming Russia for this or saying that they don't want Russia's help. Uh, I think, you know, there's some very paid bad actors there that are doing this. Cause I don't know. I think again, you guys posted this picture where it's like, you know, the country's going into this very tumultuous territory. Why are people uh, in English holding signs that are anti-Russian? It just doesn't make sense. Um, so I think that there's some certain per- public manipulation happening from bad actors um, to convince other people that, there doesn't even need to be any logic or reason to this um, that, you know, Russian intervention would be unacceptable. Iranian intervention would be unacceptable and that the framing of this would be that it's a very pro America framing of it. If we have a bit more time and if you're okay with it, uh, Chebu, I was hoping to ask uh, a bit about uh, the, you know, what go, 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 go. Yeah. The, you know, what, Okay. <laughs> yes. The you know what in this uh, question, of course, being uh, the big event uh, that often people are drawn to, the Iran-Iraq war. Um, so what do would you say, in your opinion, is the biggest misconception that you often have to deal with about the Iran-Iraq war? Yeah, I mean, we refer to it as the imposed war because it was actually, you know, imposed on Iran um, with the blessings of, uh, might I say, um, you know, the United States and the Soviet Union. And I think actually, let me just hop on the soapbox here. When it comes to misconceptions, I, I think, you know, a lot of Westerners um, say about Iran that, you know, it's a theocracy. They try to put Iran into a box and they say, you know, why doesn't Iran have this pro-socialist view and things like that? I think the Iran-Iraq war proves, well, at least left a very bad taste to what um, I would say the Trotskyist communists are capable of. Um, uh, domestically and what the USSR did uh, in its hand with arming Saddam Hussein, because on one hand, you have the USSR, you know, actively arming Saddam Hussein, right? Uh, you're giving them, you're giving him MiGs, they're giving him, you know, all, all this entire arsenal. On the second hand, you have terrorist organizations that, you know, call themselves communists at the time, right? Like, like the, like the Mujahideen of Falk, for example, um, who actually armed, uh, helped actually fight on behalf of Saddam's regime, uh, they carried out massive terrorist attacks inside Iran. And these were people that like, you know, flew the hammer and sickle. They had the hammer and sickle on their logo. And so I think, you know, the Iran-Iraq war was a huge point in where a lot of Iranians actually became hostile to the idea of communism to the point where, um, you know, Imam Khomeini actually wrote a letter. I don't know if you know about the letter to Gorbachev saying, hey, the USSR is about to collapse. The only way you can save your country is through Islam. And so I think a lot of Westerners need to realize that the only reason that Iranians are so hostile to the left wing, uh, whether that's socialism, whether you call that communism, or just left wing ideas in general, anything that's associated to that, 
is because of the uh, is because of the imposed war. I'm actually glad you brought that up because um, the, it is Holy Defense Week. I think that I believe that starts tomorrow, um, which is the the marking of. of oh the, right, because of, uh, the what event. The Iraqis invaded around this time. Um, one of the things that I think is also interesting, um, I don't know if you've kept track of it, but the historiography around that has begun to shift into a more nuanced uh, direction. So I was recent. So uh, a few years ago, I read a book by a French, uh, of all things, a French Ministry of Defense official, Pierre Razou, about the Iran-Iraq War. It's been translated into English, and unlike in previous accounts that I've seen, where it's all about the Iraqis and what Saddam is doing and how the Iraqis are going to deal with a certain problem, he actually discusses a lot what the Iranians were thinking and doing and um, Iranian politics. And one of the things he also discusses is how um, on the way it was normally portrayed, particularly at the time, was there is Ayatollah Khomeini and um, uh, Iranian politics is a black box that we don't discuss, whereas he actually talks about how prime ministers are coming and going in Tehran throughout the war and they're dealing with, I wonder if you you would say this was accurate, a problem of how do we prosecute this war with ever-diminishing resources as we get strangled? Uh, sorry, I'm not sure if I... So are you asking me to comment on it, well, why to, No, not why that was the case, but if you would say that this would be a true, a perhaps closer reflection of reality about what was going on in Iran than the stereotype, oh, we they just threw bodies at the problem. No, I actually think the, I don't think that's necessarily the case. Maybe that's the case among some of the, maybe the owner class, maybe like, you know, the more corporate class that was, that was in Iran. I think the end point of the Iran war was actually very ideologically motivated uh, with the actual Islamic revolution. I actually do have a book recommendation I'm going to post in the chat. Um, the very famous slogan um, in Iran that was actually conceptualized in the Iran-Iraq war is that the path to Jerusalem is through Karbala. Karbala being, again, a very holy city in Shia Islam. And so they actually tied the Iraq war and the, the sole motivator for that for some time was actually the fact that, you know, on day one of the Islamic revolution, they declared the liberation of Palestine to be one of their primary goals, right? And so with that, you know, you have this dictator, Saddam Hussein, who's actually acting on the behest of, you know, of the United States, who's the primary backer of the Zionists, who's also, you know, in line with England's demands, who's also established the Zionist state. And so what they saw was this, there's this puppet dictator that is actually blocking progress, despite Saddam Hussein saying he's doing this and that for Palestine. But we all know at the end of the day, he didn't really do much. Um, you know, there was, you know, the various wars that Iraq engaged with, with Israel, so I'm not going to discount the bodies being thrown at that. But at the end of the day, you know, Saddam capitulated. Uh, Iran declared itself, you know, to be the leading cause for Palestine outside of Palestine itself. All this to say that I think there was a huge ideological factor that coincides with the Islamic Revolution as to why the war needed to be carried out. And I think uh, I, I forgot the number of the flight. I think the downing of the flight was basically uh, of the Iranian civil airliner was basically America's way of saying, we're not going to let you win this war. We're not going to let this war go on. Uh, you need to stop this right now. Um, I think uh, what happened, uh, well, 
obviously that's a, a bit of a contention there because at least um well the US is was quite schizophrenic on the, the what happened there but the official line that eventually emerged is that the uh, captain of the Vincennes was uh uh far too eager to engage and uh not eager enough to actually show discipline because um as, well, as you probably know better than most of our listeners, what they did is that they ended up uh, fa- confabulating a story or trying to for about a year before having to admit that uh, someone had made a very, very terrible, mista- uh, terrible mistake. I think, though, from how I read it and certainly from all the sources that I read, including one that was actually a book written in 1990, which is that it was less that that was a signal and a lot more of what it showed that it didn't stop or discourage the Americans for very long is that they wanted to signal that irrespective that we've done this very bad thing, we're not going to stop or pull back. It didn't cause them to freak out and say, oh, my God. Sorry, can you repeat that one more time? You kind of cut off the last 10 seconds. Oh, no, simply that uh, the downing of uh, the airline by the Vince- by the Vincennes, I think the important thing there from the reading that I've done is that it showed that the United States had decided that they were not going to stop. It didn't cause them to stop or freeze or pull back of like, oh my goodness, this is getting out of control. So yes, yeah. they, they came in effectively on the war on Saddam's side. I mean, they yeah. even, the Iraqi Air Force even hit the USS Stark with an ex, with an XSA and uh, Saddam got to do what almost nobody else gets to do to the United States, which is say, I know I hit your ship and killed 37 of your sailors, but sorry, accidents happen. And the U.S. said, that's okay, Saddam. We know accidents happen. I think for the, as far as the orientation to for the U.S. for that war goes, I think, you know, no one declared it better than, I think Rumsfeld said this, where when asked about, you know, what their position is on the Iran-Iraq war, someone, I think it was Rumsfeld, it was either Rumsfeld or Kissinger that said that, I hope they both kill each other. And you can say this, you can see this too with like, you know, the, the Contras, right? Where, you know, Iran was given XYZ amount of resources, uh, which essentially helped them keep the war going, right? Um, and all at the same time, I mean, the United States was very open about the support for, for Saddam, right? They were very open about, you know, the weapons transfers. The Soviet Union was also, I think the Soviet Union was less open about it. But, you know, if you look at any of the posters uh, from, the whole, from the Holy Defense, you know, as it's called, uh, from that era, you'll notice that, you know, there's anti-Soviet and anti-American, you know, uh, imagery, right? Because that's exactly what was happening. The Iranian people were well aware about who was funding their enemy. It was the Soviet Union and it was the United States. And so with that being said, I think that, you know, the United States was a little bit more overt about it than the Soviet Union, but it just goes to show that, you know, the policy of destabilization uh, through the United States arming of both Iran and Iraq um, I mean, we could see that to this day, and I think we can even see that right now at, as we speak uh, around Iran's borders. So before we run out of time, I do want we the 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 episode is about the Iranian Revolution. So we we know about the Iranian Revolution starting in well, I guess with Mossadegh really, but where does the Re- Iranian Revolution go now, uh, two th- 2023 and forward? Like, what are the next steps? Are we focusing now back? Because um, Iran has uh, made deals with South Africa, Saudi, and Venezuela. Uh, do they focus on Palestine? Do they move into the Levant more strongly? Or 
what's next for Iran? I know that they've gotten like they they've gotten so many drone contracts that they have to decline some. But um, in terms of geopolitically, uh, what happens next? Yeah, I think there's a lot of factors here uh, throughout various different types of contexts. But what I will say is this: I think that Iran's revolution doesn't end until all bad actors are expelled from the region. I think until you know, Muslims, and I will say this, Muslims, I'm not going to generalize this to nations. I will say until Muslims in that entire region have full sovereignty and they have expelled all Western invaders, I don't think that, you know, Iran's going to rest. I think that very much aligns with the ideology of, you know, Iran's revolution. As far as geopolitics goes and just, you know, regional influence, you know, there's a lot to be done now, right? I think we have to see what goes on between Iran's trades with BRICS, what what can be developed there. I think January 1st, you know, as the official membership starts, I think we can expect a lot when it comes to trade, specifically, um, you know, the Belt and Road Initiative, how that kind of coincides with even, you know, complementing the SCO. Um, there's also, you know, ongoing deals between Pakistan and Iran and a gas pipeline that's going to further strengthen the region. There's also, you know, railways being built between Iran and Iraq right now um, that's going to, you know, facilitate trade. Uh, I think the main plan for that is to even go as far as Syria and Lebanon. So I think Iran has nowhere to go but up still. And that's a really positive note. I think we'll end there. Um, thank you, Shabir. Thank you so much for joining us. I think we'll have to make this more, more regular. And JM, if you're still with us, are you? Yes. Anything else? Any closing comments from, from the peanut gallery in Britain? Nope. <laughs> and let, us, let our viewers know where they can find you. Go ahead and plug yourself, Shabir. Uh, I'm at Abolish NATO everywhere. Uh, <laughs> everywhere being uh, Twitter and Instagram. Uh, I got one last thing to say. Uh, shout out to my boy Tanner, who's in the chat. Thanks for joining in. Thank I gotta you, check Tanner. out your movie, bro. <laughs> Thanks, Tanner. Tanner was uh, really throwing a bunch of comments in the live chat. Thank you so much, Tanner, for joining us. Uh, and you can find us everywhere, YouTube, Locals, Substack, Twitter, Telegram. But please, if you haven't have time, please go to our YouTube and like and subscribe. Please, 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 please. And until next time, I don't even remember who this weekend is, but we'll see you guys then. Thank you so much.